Hello, hello, Mark Washbourne here. I'm CEO of ReadyTech and at Worked, we're here to help you navigate the future of work. And on this podcast, we are seeking to examine the millennial mind. So why do we think this is important? So there are literally millions of millennials right now in Australia and this huge number of citizens and future leaders, both here and around the world, are perhaps facing a very different and more uncertain future than previous generations. So today, we want to unpack just how we can better support these young people into education, the transition into careers, and of course, in workplaces. And I have a fantastic guest to discuss that with today, and that person is Saxon Phipps. Saxon is the co-founder of Year 13, Australia's largest digital career and life advice platform for school leavers. Helping young people transition from school into the next phase of their lives, Saxon has become a youth leader, I personally think, in Australia because of his willingness to think differently about tertiary education and work. Saxon and his team at Year 13 now have hundreds of thousands of young people visiting year13.com.au for guidance and they've also been able to apply their approach to develop youth engagement strategies for the likes of education providers, the Department of Employment and Westpac Bank. Saxon regularly speaks at events about youth employment issues using the data from the Year 13 reports after the ATAR and after the ATAR 2, understanding how Gen Z transition into further education and employment. So for full transparency, I've been fortunate enough myself to work with Saxon's company for some time. So being across his insights, I know what a treat you're in for today. So I'd just like to say welcome to Saxon. My first question, how the devil are you? I'm all right. All right, considering I'm just coming back from, I uh, had my brother, my little brother's Bucks party on the weekend. So it's been a testing week, but I'm feeling a lot better and excited about sitting in here doing this again. Good, Saxon. You look amazing. So... Um, <laughs> Look, thanks for coming on to work today and helping me to probe into the millennial mind. All right, so I love the name. What, the podcast name? Yeah, it worked. Thank you. You know who came up with that? I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I do. So, uh, yeah, look, the millennial mind might be a scary place to probe into, but uh, thanks for coming on. No worries. Pleasure to be here. So you're a millennial yourself, right? And uh, so I guess you're okay speaking on behalf of your generation today? Uh, Yeah, I, I think that... For what we've been doing for the past kind of eight years, we've got a bit of a flated sense that we know what we're talking about. So <laughs> I, uh, I'm happy to be able to take the take the lead on this one. Good stuff, Zach. So uh, yeah, look on works. What we really like to kick off with is understanding our guests' pathway through work and education. So tell us a bit about your own story. Yeah, um, <clears throat> pardon me. When I um, when I was finishing school, I really had absolutely no idea what I was going to do. I had um, I come from a family where my parents worked quite hard to be able to put us through the school we went through, and so I kind of had this idea that when you go through that, um, you you are very much so set up for a good entry into society, and it just wasn't the case. I um, I, I kind of came out because I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't think I was going to go straight into university. And from the get-go, I just was hitting these stumbling blocks. So I just ended up throwing myself in every single odd job humanly possible, just gaining experience. And so um, did that for about 18 months and then took myself off and, and backpacked around the world and came back and had this idea of developing out a, like a, a website which helped young people throughout this transitional f- period. And then my little brother, Geordie, he was actually finishing school at that same time and um, he was going off and going into tertiary education and, and going down that path and quickly found out that it wasn't for him trying to manage the workload, the, the studying load, how different it was from school. 
Um, and then Will Stubley, who's one of our best mates and one of our um, the other f- co-founder, he was a bit different. He wanted to be a carpenter his whole life mm-hmm. um, and then did quite well in year 12. And they were, the school was like, well, you're not going to be a carpenter. You're, you're going to do engineering. And so um, Will was kind of jolted from, from the get-go as well. And fortunately, the boys had a friend commit suicide in their first year out. And that was where I was kind of umming and ahhing about this idea of a, of a platform, which really helps young people throughout this transition. And since then, for the past kind of eight years, that's been my uh, my bread and butter and what we've been throwing ourselves into. So I guess right back then, you kind of saw a disconnect in uh, in the advice that, or the guidance that was available for young people. Yeah, definitely. I think that um, I was always kind of independent in my own decisions and my own thought processes. And when I've always been lucky to be able to have you know people around me who I've kind of seen as you know mentors or influencers. So I've always been happy to be able to ask questions. But when I saw with Geordie when he came out, I was kind of his pillar of being able to help him throughout that transitional process. And I just thought like, what if you don't have that? What if you haven't got that older brother or older sister or that that uncle or auntie or that mum and dad that you know can understand what you're going through? And so that was really the precedence of what we wanted to do. We wanted to be able to have something which young people could go to and feel as though they weren't being alienated or they weren't being spoken down to, that they were, they were really being connected with. And that was the whole precedence of Year 13. Yeah, look, it's a really amazing story. And I think we'll talk more about that later. Really big question on school leavers. You know, you think you're very well placed to answer this. Uh, how are they feeling about post-school? You know, what's, what's, what's really changing in the way they're looking at their post-school options? I think now it's, it, it's an incredibly interesting time. Um, there's so much disparity um, in what young people actually understand of this, this future of work and then the future of education. And, you know, they have a real social drive about them. I think they've seen of um, previous generations, you know, their drive to, for, for growth and, and to consume and, and to kind of dominate. And whereas this generation very much so are a lot thoroughly more thought out in, in terms of working together and, and understanding the social drive. And I think we've, um, uncovered some pretty uncomfortable truths about what they actually do know about moving into the future when it comes to education and employment. And that's kind of our agenda now with Year 13 is to really push and have them understand that the future of work is changing and it's changing at a rapid pace. And so is the future of education. What does it look like and where does it go? And I think, you know, one thing we stumbled across was about 56% of young people are not worried about automation and, and, and globalization, which is just frightening to think that, you know, a lot of them are rushing into these industries or degrees, um, which aren't going to be relevant in the next five to 10 years. So how do we change that narrative? How do we have young people actually understand you know, what the process and what the future actually looks like? So, so in the sort of traditional models or what's available now, particularly in schools, for example, you know, how, how do you sort of rate the career advice and you know, what, what could be done better? It's really interesting. At the moment, we're doing a, um, we're speaking with career advisors from around the country and how disjointed it is, is just, is phenomenal. You've got some, some states and territories which leave it completely up to the schools um, and, and it's up to their, um, you know, their powers that be that, that choose how they do their career education and that, that whole transitional process. But then you have some schools which have got incredible um, facilities and incredible infrastructure that it, that is there. And so, um, you know, it, it's not just one person's job. Um, I think career advice falls into a lot of different aspects. I think parents have a massive part to play in terms of career advice. I think uh, schools certainly do. Government have, have another um, stance to play because, you know, for a young person, it's the first time they're being really being met with the meaning of that question of, you know, 
what do you want to be? What do you want to do? And, you know, it hasn't just been, oh, I want to be a fire truck driver or I want to be this from, you know, an adolescence. You're actually having to make those those thoughts and those decisions. And I just don't think they're being well prepared at the moment um, to be able to meet those answers. Yeah, you mentioned parents there. I think that's an interesting one to have a look into. I think, you know, I think, do you think maybe too often parents are expecting young people to maybe follow a similar pathway as they did where yeah. it may no longer be relevant? Oh, completely. Absolutely. Um, and it's interesting. I'm reading a book at the moment called Path to Purpose um, and how to, how to help children find their path. And there, there's a story in there about it of a young man who um, was, who graduated from, from school, was spending his time spending, um, you know, donating it to a, a social cause. And he, his father was like, well, yeah, that's all good and great, but you need to be applying for law school. And so he was, you know, they, they, it was met in an argument and in a heated battle. And then so he agreed with his dad that he would start making all these applications and whatnot. And so what the actual, what that then caused was for that young person to then think that his dreams and aspirations are actually stupid and he shouldn't be doing that and he should be following this. And it was taking him several applications to be able to get into law school. And at the time of the book, they were saying he still hadn't gone in. And is that reflective of his enthusiasm for wanting to go into that? And so I think when parents stand in like that and they say, yeah, well, I think the, what's the, the way it's phrased? It's um, that, that, that sounds like a nice hobby, but what are you actually going to do? I think that's a, a, a terrible way to be able to phrase it because if you can identify in a young person their purpose quite early and support that and nurture that, ultimately it's going to be more meaningful and, and more successful for, for that young person throughout that transition to know that mum and dad, who are the biggest influences, are actually supporting them throughout that endeavour. So uh, thanks for the book tip. I think we'll, we'll put that one in the show notes. Um, at Year 13... Further to that, what do you advise young people? Uh, what what type of advice do you give? It's funny we um and our whole business has been built around the way that our audience come to us in terms of their their response to things, they how well they engage with us. And so, when someone comes to us with that that broad advice, we always say um, we ask a question. We call it our million dollar question: like, What would you do if money was no object? And it's it 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 allows people to really trip over their own truths to really think okay, uh, what what am I into? What do I find motivating? What is my intrinsic value? And so often you have those answers inside of yourself anyway. Um, you don't need some you know, master guru to be sitting in front of you to give you the answer. You know those answers from within, but it's just being able to spark that to be able to then have that, build that momentum to then be able to go off and work with animals or go and travel or go spend your time working in, in, a, in a social entity, um, whatever it is. Um, I think that when you have someone actually trip over that truth as, as i said before it's ultimately more powerful more meaningful that's a really really great cool concept so um and, and sort of thinking education thinking about those traditional pathways you know the the traditional say universe uh, university degree obviously comes with a lot of investment uh potentially uh a debt coming off the back of that i think also you know given that employment rates post uni are probably not quite what they were how are young people looking at that pathway um again I think that university has has its place and has um, has meaning for you know specific students. Um, you know, we're doing a bit of research now at the moment, and in, into young people's perceptions of the, the, the post school journey, and it's still just remarkable to see that the amount of young people that think that it is the be all and end all and it is the best option. I think that um, whilst universities again have you know a real place, I think that you've got to be able to look at it objectively and say, right, is, am I capable of learning within this environment? And 
what type of value does vocational education really offer? I think that it's really missed and it's got this incredible um, you know, misconception about what VET really is. And, you know, I'm someone who's gone through the VET system and, and this is something we're really advocating in just about every single report that we read these days. It's all about skills. It's all about transferable skills. It's all about... Um, you know, people being able to digest short amounts of information, then apply it to the, to their jobs, and I think that's where a lot of young people get caught up, and a lot of parents as well, thinking that it's it is still that that traditional success path of finish school, you go to uni, you go into the industry, you work there for thirty years as a pot of rain, uh, gold at the end of the rainbow, and we're all good and we're all sweet, and it's just not the case. And and by that you mean working with animals? Is that what you mean? No. <laughs> It's funny, every time we, we talk in schools, we're always like, vet, and I'm like, we've got to say vocational education and training. That's one of the hardest, hardest barriers to entry um, from the get-go. But yeah, vocational education and training, it's just, it's such a phenomenal, phenomenal way of learning. Um, it's, it combines, you know, practical um, with theory and, and in, a, in a way which you can do it in short bursts. And I think the skills that you get from it are just it's unbelievable and you can literally use them from industry to industry to industry. Um, we have a, we run a program called the Truth Project in schools at the moment and we talk about Leonardo da Vinci who was the first ever apprentice or one of the first apprentices, sorry, and how he was able to take the skills from, you know, carpentry and, and leather making and molding and drawing and all these different skills that he learned and apply them to each job that he was doing, which is the reason why his works were so profound and why he became such, such a prolific kind of uh, influencer of the time. And when you compare that to a modern day, um, and by no means am I comparing myself to Leonardo da Vinci at all, but I actually did, I worked, I did um, vet as a part of my year 12 and I worked 80 hours in a commercial kitchen. Now at the time I was like, what am I doing in here? I, mean, you know, I don't want to be a chef, but spending 80 hours in a kitchen, you know, you, you're, you're dicing onions and you're browning off mints and you're mixing all your herbs and you're boiling your water and you're working with your team and you're under an incredible amount of pressure and you've got a deadline and you've got a, a boss or a chef who's you know demanding this work from you. And you've then got to deliver it, make it aesthetic and then deliver it out to the public. And those skills that you, I learned there are very similar to what I do in my job every single day now in terms of manage, managing personnel, in terms of coming up with creative solutions, in terms of understanding you know, emotions and, and, and staff members and working to a deadline to then put it out to the public. And so I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions with VET is that you, get, you, you go into doing vocational education and you're stuck in that industry and it's your only opportunity. Mm. And I think that's one of the barriers with, with university is that people go, I've just spent $40,000 on this degree. It means nothing to my the, the industry. I actually don't like this industry. And then it's just they're, they're going, oh, I'm now out of pocket. I, I haven't done something I've enjoyed. Um, I've got all my friends doing this. I've got this social pressure that I'm meant to be knowing. And it's just it's all part of this whole fun, um, stumbling block that I think a lot of young people meet by rushing into making that decision. No, I think uh, I share this with you, uh, the, the love for vocational education and training. And uh, I think what you what you were talking about there, the transferability of skills, you know, particularly, I think, more valid in, you know, in the, in the future in the skilled economy. right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, there are a number of reports which come out now saying you know, young people need to be focusing on enterprise skills. And like, what, what does that mean? And, and it is things like creative solutions, working within a team, problem solving. 
um, being able to, um, you know, multitask and, and do presentations and speak confidently and, and be able to be willing to kind of surrender an ego and, and learn from a boss or someone, you know, that real teamwork. And there's no right way of, of painting those. You can't say, oh, we're going to do a course in teamwork. It's obviously skills that you develop, but they are skills that are very required into the future. Yeah. Well, I love all the thinking on skills and fit. And we, you know, at ReadyTech, we work with a lot of uh, training providers and apprenticeship providers. And, and one thing we do here is that, that some of them do find it difficult to find candidates for some of the roles, maybe in some of the traditional trades and so forth. What are you seeing on that? What are you thinking? And uh, what, what could be done to attract people to, to some of those uh, some of those areas? I think it's a it's a massive consideration piece. And before we spoke about the, um, you know, the, the university debt that you can go into, um, and it's interesting in a report that we released last year called After the ATAR. And one of the questions we posed was, you know, when taking into consideration apprenticeship earnings and university debt, an Australian apprenticeship can graduate $150,000 ahead of a uni student financially. Knowing this information, would this make you consider an apprenticeship more seriously? In which 64% of the audience came back saying yes. We then dove a little bit deeper into that and we go, the respondents that didn't consider an apprenticeship Overall, 49% said that knowing this information would make them consider it more seriously. Of the respondents that did consider an apprenticeship, overall, 82% said that knowing this information would make them consider it more seriously, in which 86% of those were current year 12 students. So I think that's one of the biggest issues is that this consideration piece and the understanding of what the true value is and the longevity within those careers and those industries and how you can be earning money throughout the first three years of, of doing a trade of doing a vocation and doing a trade and then to come out with a qualification which is incredibly world recognized i've got friends of mine who are carpenters working all around the world and because they're an australian carpenter they are the pick of the litter every single time mm. and it's not just carpentry but again if maybe maybe if we use carpentry as the example it's the skills that they learn throughout that the the business skills and management skills the person the, the um, personality skills being able to deal with people from different backgrounds different age groups to be able to break down problems these are those that's where i think the the real issue is in terms of that consideration piece that you go okay if it's money is the driver and if it's success which is the driver and we look at that that young people don't have that full understanding i think that's where a lot of the problem lays within the uh, the vocational system so uh, you mentioned there your research paper after the ATAR. i think you've uh, produced two of those now and um you know all really into delving into how young people are thinking about work and education any other insights that would be worth sharing? Yeah, definitely. Oh, I could go on this for hours. Um, I think one of the one of the really interesting ones, and it's obviously been you know quite prolific and, and well documented recently, has been the mental health landscape. Not just young people. Um, you know, I think as a society, um, there is you know a real systemic issue with with mental health. But what we uncovered was we asked the question, you know, what emotions best describes how you felt or, or feeling about going into year 12 and, and, and post. 70% of the audience came back saying they were feeling stressed, anxious, depressed, fearful, frustrated, with mm. excited being the first positive um, positive emotion. Um, and we, we made the correlation that was excited for the year to be over. And I just think that for that to be the case, if school is to be there to be preparing you for the world beyond, um, beyond you know, the school grounds, is it being done successfully? Like if you're training for th for 13 years to then play your one grand final in, in footy, 
or whatever the sport would be, you'd be pretty amped to be able to get there and be like, I'm ready to take this on. Mm. I couldn't be more prepared if I tried. And then you'd go out there and you'd give it all you got and then be like, whatever the result, at least I gave it my best. But it's almost working in opposite at the moment to be able to understand that 70% of the audience of young people in schools are saying that they're feeling stressed, anxious, depressed. It's, it's, it's concerning. And, and I think that, that that then perpetuates a lot of these issues of people not making correct decisions when you know, choosing their, their educational path or making their career paths, ignoring passions, ignoring what their, what their um, purposes are. And I think that this is all a part of the, the real big problem. Mental health, uh, that some of those numbers you throw around, you know, strikes me as epidemic-like proportions. And this is a massive and complex issue and not, not one I'm sure that we can tackle in a meaningful way today and there's no, no silver bullet. But what, where are we going wrong with our young people? Um, and, and I know it's, there is no silver bullet, but I, I really think that, that when someone can really understand what they're passionate about and why they're passionate about it and you nurture that and you support that, it really changed the, the dialogue of, of any conversation. I think that if, you know, the traditional conversation would be like, right, Mark, what are you going to do next year? You know, like, what do you, what do you think you're going to do? And if you're a young person that has no idea, much like how I felt for a long time, you know, it's, it's a tough question because it's your, your, it's your parents, it's your biggest influence and you feel like you should know. And we've got this, this societal issue of like, we're meant to know what to do. And it's the question that, you know, we're brought up with is what are you going to be when you grow up? And, it's it's like you're meant to know from from it from a young age. In that being the case, I, I think that you know what happens is a lot of young people aren't understanding what their intrinsic motivations are, and they're they're getting becoming too focused on their extrinsic values. And what that means is that you know their extrinsic values are things like the cars, the house, the money, and this is all I think perpetuated a lot by social media is that you've got to be showing off how good you are all the time, and so. When people are identifying that they've got to go to the most prestigious uni to then go to this, to then work for this um, firm, to then have this, to have this, to have this, the whole time inside that person, they're going like, why aren't I feeling good? Why, why haven't I been? Why don't I have that success? Why aren't I successful? And it's because, plain and simply, I think uh, that it's that they're ignoring their passions. I've, I've encountered it myself. I've had friends call me up, you know, crying on, on the floor days before going back to work. You know, think I went into their house and you know, friends sitting there and hurling. These are these are well brawn, big, strong fellas, and they're crying about how worried they are about going back to work because they're spending, you know, forty, fifty, sixty hours at a job they cannot stand, and then on the weekends they go out and have a few beers, and then on a Sunday they're hungover and they're lying on the couch, scared shitless about going back to work, and so. Yeah, and th this guy, the story that I'm telling there, like, you know, he forever has been passionate about animals. He would always come around to our house and talk about how, you know, we need to do this with the dogs and this and this and this. And I asked him the question then and there. I was just like, you don't do a single thing you're passionate about. I'm like, why don't you go spend some time in an animal shelter? In which he did. And then he started doing, um, he started donating his time um, working with disadvantaged kids as well, like being a, an older brother and a mentor side of things. And it completely changed his perspective. In, in an instance and, and it is that idea of tripping over your truth and so i think that that has a big part to play in in the mental health landscape that as soon as you identify that because then when you when you do you're, you're working with like-minded people and the work that you do actually compels you and you enjoy doing it and you don't care about time and you, and you get into those states of flow and you go home and then you start researching it some more and you start messaging each other's ideas and you feel as though you're actually contributing and i think that when you don't and you just feel as though you're a number you know, in, in a cog, it's, 
it's completely demoralizing. And I understand that why there is this, this, you know, this systemic issue with mental health at the moment. Really powerful insight. Powerful story. <laughs> uh, it was full on. <clears throat> yeah. Um, linked to that, I suppose, and that, that, uh, that school is the ATAR, mm-hmm. um, itself. Um, where, where do you stand on the, on the current framework? Um, I, th- I think I think the issue with the current system and how how it works, whilst I think it has its merits in some in some places, the fact that some people try and game it um, gives you a, a good indication that it's not right. Um, I think that the ATAR negatively gears anything else besides university, um, and I, I don't mean to be sounding like I'm taking stabs at university at all. It's it's, it's not my intention. It's more so the fact that. It's the Australian Tertiary Administration's ranking, and whether you like it or not, no matter how many how many times you explain it, it doesn't give the truth for for a young person going through it. When everyone else is going for that big shiny object, you're going to try and go for that big shiny object, and it doesn't put everything else on, on a level playing field. It really doesn't look at what vocation offers. It doesn't offer. It doesn't show you what traineeships offer. It doesn't show you what apprenticeships, what the the real value that what they really offer. And I think because it's this competition to then show who is the best and who is the highest ranking and then we celebrate it and i think it's wrong that it's you know you get the 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 papers and it's like oh the top performing schools and it's like yeah great for for those ones but what about all the other ones that have done incredible things throughout the year what about the the incredible artworks and major works or or the writing or or the person that's gone through complete adversity to be able to come up and, and achieve something incredible within a year like None of that's celebrated. It's just like this this number and this score. And then, you know, we, we do it and then everyone just goes, oh, but don't worry, we're not a number. And I'm like, well, not really because we focus on it and it is focused on it. And I'm like, it's not putting things on, again, that, that, that level playing field. It's not making the options. If the idea of school is to prepare you for the world beyond it and to be able to make you articulate and understand numbers and to be able to have it, you know, understand history and, and whatever it may be, and you're meant to then transition into this real world, you want to be going out work ready and you want to go out knowing that you're wanting to do something that is, you know, is for you, not in this, not in this competition realm. <clears throat> so, yeah, I think that the, again, that the, the ATAR system, I don't think is fair for all students. And I think that it creates competition within schools and, and by no means do I think competition is wrong, but it creates competition that doesn't put all players on on the same on the same mark that's really interesting i think you mentioned the other initiative you've been working on the truth project and i know you're going out face to face out in schools uh so link to that tell us a bit more about what you're seeing and uh also how you engage with the young people yeah well the truth project really just um it, it came a from name by the way it's uh it's like like our podcast it's <laughs> You need a good name to be able to stick around in these worlds, unfortunately. So, yeah, I think my parents give me the name Saxon, and yeah, now the Truth Project. It's another another new new element to it. But yeah, the Truth Project really came from how we how we were looking at our data and and looking at our reports and and seeing like, okay, um, you know, what can we actually do with this? How can we actually be creative with this data? Like, it's all very well and good to sit back and talk about oh, here's the issue and here's the issue and here's the issue and, and here's another issue. Like, what are we going to do about these issues? We were like, can I swear? <laughs> we were like, 
it. Like, let's let's create a program. Let's do something which can actually really be able to put this on a level playing field just so people can understand their decisions. I think that was that was the biggest thing is that upon doing it, we just said, okay, cool. What are what are the issues that young people face? You know, it, it is resilience and motivation and understanding what they they're inspired by and what their intrinsic motivations are and that versus extrinsic and kind of the timeline of work and and what you go through and the missing facts of vocational education, pathways and opportunities, um, and then kind of really understanding how to use data to make career decisions. I think that one of the um, or what we thought was that with, you know, there's so much data available at the moment in terms of making career decisions and looking at our industry is going to be around in five to 10 years. Um, what is the educational attainment? How much am I going to earn? All these things that are just, they're made for you to understand, but there had been nothing there. So yeah, we created out the truth project and just the results from it were, were wonderful. And I think what it did is it really bridged that gap between kind of a young person and a career advisor. It allowed them, you know, we asked that question of what would you do if money was no object? And we had a number of career advisors come back to us and say, you know, we've got some of the boys who are notoriously hard to be able to kind of communicate with and get anything out of. And we just posed them that same question and, it, and it's really broken down those those barriers. So um, I think it's... Yeah, the breakthroughs are, are the important thing, right? Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. And so... Um, yeah, being able to have that and have that rapport and be able to have young people and students. And we're not trying to do it as teachers. Like, you know, I was doing the presentations last year and, and Janet Beth and Scott, the new guy who's doing it with us. Um, you know, we went, we went all around all around the state. Um, you know, we were out in Griffith. We were out in Dubbo. We were, you know, in, in Sydney and the Metropolitan. And, you know, we really saw how different you know, the worlds are out there, but it's the same transitional process that, that young people are going through. And so... Yeah, the Truth Project's been incredibly interesting to, to be a part of. Just back to what you said earlier, Richard Branson actually says, uh, screw it, let's do it. So I guess it was on similar lines to that, right? But he's a bit more tame than you. <laughs> he is. Um, and he, but funnily enough, he, he, he's always been a motivator of mine. Yeah, I, I think that you know, it's the old Australian SAS saying of, you know, who dares wins. And so I think that there are there are issues which have faced young people for a while. And when we were, when we were able to embrace social media to, um, to our advantage and to be able to really understand, not think about a problem and say, this is a problem. And we, we always kind of focus on data to be able to validate an issue or, or understand an issue and to then be able to come up with creative solutions. It, it's been the driver for us. And so, mm. yeah, in, in resonating what, what Richard Branson said there, like sometimes you do just have to throw yourself in, in a deep end. Now, this uh, this is actually a beautiful segue into the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, <laughs> uh, which is the fact that you did start your own business at a really young age. How old were you when you started year 13? Um, I was I was 21 and um, Geordie and Will were both 19. And uh, look, this, uh, this seems to be a massive trend for the future, right? And young people and, uh, you know, I think really the internet is, is really the enabler of that. Uh, you know, it's high risk, high reward. Uh, but uh, how do you advise young people looking at that route? Um, I think where we've been successful has been the fact that we're incredibly passionate about it. Um, and I think that passion breeds passion, um, you know, and, I, and I've kind of said it a couple of times in here that, when you work with like-minded people towards a common goal, um, you know you you celebrate your wins and and you learn from your losses. And so I think that you know we've never been out in this to make a quick buck. It's never been like right we're here to you know you know two year five year plan and then what what's the next project we're going to jump onto because that gives you 
it gives you the option to to not throw yourself fully at it. And so I think to to anyone who's wanting to start their own thing and wanting to do it, you have to fully commit to it. You can't be, I really, really despise and do not agree with the, the idea of, oh, you know, well, this is your first one and, and, and you know, you've got to be planning for your, your next one. And I think that's just shocking advice to give to anyone. I'm like, no, because then you're giving yourself that avenue of failure. And I'm like, when when you literally, if you believe in what you are doing that hard and, and that fervently, you are going to be able to find success in it. And, um, you know, we, money was never an object for us. It, it was like, right, let's let's, you know, change this thought process. Let's change this system. And, um yeah, fast forward eight years, we, we've been able to grow a business and, you know, we've got like-minded people still today working with us and, and we're still students to the, the, this whole world. We're still learning every single day. It's, um, yeah, and you're never going to have the right answers um, and, and you're never going to be, you've got to learn from your fail uh, your failures um, and take the lessons from that. And that's something which we've kind of always worn in our chest, as you may or may not know. I uh, know very well, so. <laughs> observed a lot of that incredible journey so uh look a, a, a trend i've noticed and the word that keeps coming up is about purpose and i think you know you, you have an organization that has purpose but i've really noticed this with young people working in our company at ReadyTech that it does seem that young people do have that really strong desire for purpose and experiences now much more in their work uh, how, what do you see in there yeah, definitely. I, I think that the world of work is changing um, with you know people wanting a bit more flexibility in their hours. They're wanting to be able to work from home, um, being able to work from you know being away, um, which you know as an employer it, it can be you know tough to be able to understand that. But I think that when you play to someone's values, and and we do this at Year Thirteen, we have you know majority of our staff work th- uh, four days a week, and then on a Friday we encourage them to. Um, follow a creative passion or a creative pursuit because we want them to be able to scratch that itch and to ignite that fire within themselves because then when they come back to year 13, they are actually the best version of themselves. They know how much work they've, they've, they've then got to do to then get to that point that they go off and they do. You know, We've got referees, we've got you know poets and writers and songwriters and singers and they all come back just full of full of life and full of energy. So we're not draining draining the life out of them by saying like, no, 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 no. We're actually being, being, being flexible with it. Um, I think it's important. I think it's important because it breeds a good culture. Going a bit deeper into that, you know, you, you hire a lot of young people, right? I think you're probably a little bit too old now to be engaging with the young people. Yeah, right? definitely. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, what what are these what are these young people really? Do you think that they're looking for in their work in their experience that's maybe different from previous generations? Oh, that's a good question. I think now more than ever, people are starting to to wake up to the fact that they want to be doing something they're passionate about. I've had friends stuck in many ruts for many years um, that couldn't work out why they felt this way and, and why they hadn't been successful. They were, you know, the best achievers at school and they had all the plan and but. You know, when when they went into industries they weren't they weren't enjoying it, it really affected the rest of their lives. And so, I think now when you see young people actually wanting to work, and you can support that and nurture that. You know, there's been a few reports come out which have said that, you know, Gen Zs, which is the kind of the generation which we kind of deal with, and I'm at the end of the millennial phase and moving to that Gen Zs, they really do want to be nurtured and you know, shown admiration for their work and, and recognition and whatnot. And so. You know, it's it's who they are, and that's a, just an understanding that I have to have as an older, um, as an older employer, and 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 you know, to a lot of our advisors and whatnot. But we need to be able to understand their wants and needs and desires, and when we can harness that within our business, 
ultimately it's 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 working well for us and and we get the best out of them they don't want to leave you know we've got an incredible retention rate in year 13 so um and we've got growth opportunities i think when we present the growth opportunities to the individuals that they can see that their work has meaning towards a common goal it's working incredibly well millennials get a bad rap don't they sax we do i don't know why but yeah, we cop it. And uh, so what do you think has caused that disconnect between these two generations? I think it's it's very tough for a millennial at the moment um, to be, to have a full grasp of the future. I think that, um, you know, when we look at the, the the good old Australian dream of, you know, you work in an industry, you finish school, you're, you're with your sweetheart, you work in your job, so you go into higher ed or you work in your job, you work there for 30 years, you buy the house, raise a family, um, and you know, story just you perpetuate that same story. It's just not the case for for our generation. I think now more than ever we've got you know connectivity like never before. We've got opportunities and options like never before. So you've always kind of got that element of wonder, and you've got things like you know, should I travel? Should I be doing this? Where should I be going? Um, it's difficult when you can't when you look at it on the other side when you can't actually build an idea of your future sustainably because you are in and out of work or you're not in a, a job you enjoy or um, you know how am I going to afford this house and and you know where is work going to be we keep hearing this you know that 50 percent of jobs are going to be gone in the next 10 years for the older generations that's not your problem like it's ours and we've got every other problem kind of which is seeping through to us um, and so when it's kind of just this you know, dark news consistently about how much we're whinging and how much we're, you know, we're not contributing and we're, we're less productive than other generations. You know, when we keep getting told all these, all these problems and like that's, it's, it's our problems to do with. And I think that's what, where the, this whole divide comes is that, you know, for, for parents and older generations, um, they can sit back and say, well, you know, if you, it would, it was a lot like, like that for me. It's like, well, it, it's not, it, you know, we're at this major point of uh, inflection point of, yeah, where jobs are going to be, how are we going to be secure? When you And you can't build that within your own thought process. Um, it's it's why there's so much disparity between our, in our generation at the moment, I think. And and, and one of the common gripes you know, that we all hear is, you know, that young people are entitled, you know, that uh, and they, they want it all on day one. They come into the workplace, you know, they're impatient. Now, where do you think that comes from and how would you, I guess, guide or advise an employer to, to, to work through that? I think, yeah, the idea that, that we're entitled is is probably not true to, to what the, the, the real issue is. I think that mm-hmm. we've been brought up, um, you know, meaning uh, having to know um, what we're meant to be doing and being able to just throw yourself into this world. And because the world is changing so rapidly, like never before, we're at the dawn of, you know, a fourth industrial revolution. Um, I think it's hard for a young person to be able to, again, build, have that grasp on, on the future. And I think that w- when they're in the workplace, they're wanting to be able to be nurtured and supported and, and to be able to know that they're growing, that, that, that their work is actually being recognized. Um, it is difficult. Don't get me wrong. I'm like I'm I'm a part of it, and, and we do with it every day. But I think that for employers out there, it, it is really being able to st- being able to understand um, the individual and their goals and their aspirations, and how you can actually help them achieve that 
so they feel as though they have a, you know, a sense of meaning and purpose in the workplace. I couldn't agree more. And we've got heaps of young people at ReadyTech and we've got some incredibly uh, talented and, and hardworking people and uh, it's absolutely worth the investment. One other thing I've noticed is flexibility is is valued highly uh, by, by, by young people and maybe more so than financial rewards at times. Have you seen that? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's you know, with, with all our staff that work, um, uh, you know, four days with us, um, they are sacrificing a day of work, and so which is a day of pay. But it's it's for them to then be able to have those creative pursuits, and it's for them to be able to align to whatever it is. And so that then has a distance, and it, and it and it creates a gap. And it allows them to be able to have a work life balance. I think you know it, it's coming out of I think it's Finland or Sweden at the moment. The real benefits of a four day work week um, that. Fridays are, um, are are traditionally kind of a bit of a bit of a write-off, and so you know when you can actually put your work into into four days, and then you have that extra time to be able to, you know, whether it is, whether it is you know, creative pursuits, whether it is meditation, whether it's music, whether it's traveling, surfing, you know, exploring, whatever it is. I think when you can actually allow people that opportunity to be able to explore those drives, um, it's it's invaluable. Yeah talked about it on the last podcast as well where people expected to live maybe 20 25 percent longer than previously so uh, what's the what's the rush right and maybe some of the old models need to be uh, rethought reimagined yeah absolutely and i think that again and i know i keep kind of relaying onto it that the world of work is changing so quickly but it, it's where the the ideas of you know a global base income um start to come into it and what that actually provides i think there is so much concern about the future that we haven't got a solution out there yet. And if 50% of the jobs are going and, and it, where there's a, where this major risk of automation, how do we survive as, as a culture and as a society and, and as a workforce? And so, um, yeah, I, I think that progressive thought and progressive thinking has to be embraced now because otherwise we're going to get to this cliff's edge and be like, well, what the happened? Where did it, where did it all go? A universal wage, a fascinating topic, right? And, uh, you know, in some ways, if you think about it, maybe it itself undermines that reason to work and ultimately that purpose that is so important. Absolutely. But there's always going to be outliers in any situation. Um, you know, we've got a a, you know, a, um, a welfare system now, which I don't, I don't think it's correct, but it's like 37% of our taxes go to. Um, I think that if we were to be able to, re-kick a you know a, 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 a an economy with having people being able to have that access to you know you can see it as capital if you're getting five hundred a thousand two thousand dollars a month whatever it would be from from a government uh, or you know from the, this global base income um it allow it takes that burden off being able to you know start a business and you know if businesses are going to be automated there's human capital at the line so if you can encourage people to be able to come together with this 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 money you can then start to create more entrepreneurial hubs you can start you can have people create to follow passions um you know it's it's not as though it's just like right we need to rush in here i understand that it does then pose a question about people then not want to work and we lose that drive and we're then kind of consistently going to be supporting them but i don't quite understand what another option is going to be if, if you know 50 percent of jobs are gone and we've got a growing population uh, what, what's another solution just a, a, a little sidetrack here um you, know, you built a business on uh, on social media in many ways, uh, right? Which is, I guess, a very modern approach. So, what what have you learned from that? Maybe what what could you share in your experiences on that? 
Oh, good question. Um, we were, we were lucky to be able to come through to be able to be you know kind of ahead of the game in terms of what social media was and before it came to where it is today. Um, so that certainly gave us gave us an inside lane as to how we could build a business. Um, but I still completely you know we we look back at our first ever business plan from 2011 and we say in there that how we're going to market this thing how we're going to grow it, how we're going to build it is you know we'll do school presentations and we will do word of mouth and we'll work with parents and we'll work with government and we'll understand problems and then create solutions and you know to think eight years ago we wrote that and now fast forward eight years that's exactly what we've done and there wasn't really a mention of social media um you know, it's being creative with your solutions. Understand your problem and then create your solutions. I think that as soon as you can kind of work out what your target market is, where are they going to be, what are they consuming, be that content, be that, you know, retail, um, you then need to then think creatively about how you can actually, you know, build your business around that. So, um, yeah, and, and even so now we're, we're, we're limiting our the amount of our social activity to be able to kind of really drive further u- user engagement and from doing so we have we're, we're, we're lowering our our traffic source from social media but we're upping others and it's incredibly exciting to see that you know you need to innovate or die and that's the whole idea in this whole game of, of, of business and, and being entrepreneurial is that yeah it's the old saying innovate or die well that really super amazing discussion uh any final thoughts on millennials right obviously uh you know we've got gen z coming through now as well right so uh what do you think we should see from the next batch um i think we're going to see a lot more uh equality coming through i think we're going to be seeing a lot more social social driven social orientated uh young people coming through um you have to you can't ignore the factor of the environment and 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 what questions and what arguments that those pose i think you need to be objective to be able to look at both sides of it um and i think that whilst millennials have been the older sibling and taken the battering from uh the the parents the gen z's will come through like any good old younger sibling and have this free run of rain and we've taken it on so i think i i think that's the uh kind of the future and, and how uh, young australians are going to be working so uh, yeah, no doubt more friction to come between the generations. <laughs> no doubt. Exciting to see what the next generation does to to change the world. So look, thank you, Saxon, so much for being a spokesperson no, a for your generation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I truly believe the work you're doing is very important. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me.